0: are a nation adrift. We have lost our rudder and our sails are broken down. It appears as if no one can give a definitive answer on any moral subject or issue. It appears that men do not any longer possess the ability to have any spiritual discernment. Is this right or is this wrong? Is this pleasing to God or is it not? It doesn't matter the moral issue. It seems as if everyone is confused. And just like a ship would drift aimlessly through the sea, we're drifting through the periods of time in which man lives without much direction. But there is a way to improve that. There's a way to correct it. In Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, the prophet said to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You see, God's word is able to provide us the guidance we need to be able to make moral decisions. It's that which guides and directs the way you and I ought to worship our Lord. And it also provides for us the pattern that God wants us to follow with regards to His body, the church. Over the past several weeks, I've been speaking on the church of Christ. We've talked about the church of Christ determined, that is, was planned by God. God knew what He wanted, and He revealed through those prophets the church. Last Sunday morning, we talked about the church described by Jesus, how he gave us a wonderful picture of what the church ought to look like. This morning, we're going to talk about the church of Christ described by Paul. By way of introduction, Jesus asked a very important question in Mark chapter 4 and verse 30. He said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? I would want to ask you the question, how would you explain the church to someone who knew nothing about it? Here's someone who wants you to tell them what the church of Christ, not a denominational title, but a description of possession what the church of Christ looks like. Picture it for them mentally. Well, you see, that's part of Paul's task in the book of Ephesians. He says, To me, who am less than least of all saints, was this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. And then he picks up in verse 11 or 10 to the intent now that into the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. And then he goes on in verse 11 and says, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord there is a wonderful picture given to us in Scripture. I will remind you that this is going to be a six-lesson series. The three that will follow this one is the gospel or the church declared, then the church designed, and then finally the church delivered. But this morning we're going to look at the book of Ephesians as Paul describes for us the church of Christ. He's going to use four pictures, if you will, of what the Lord's church looks like. So I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to open them to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to simply go through this book. And we're not going to drift. We're going to focus. We're going to let the Lord picture for us the way the church was intended to be. First of all, it is pictured as a body. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is his body. There's a reason why the Lord chose that specific way of picturing the church. But you might think, well, this is just an isolated instance, and oh, I'd suggest not. In fact, you can go to the book of Colossians. As Paul writes that other Asia Minor church, he said, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. You drop down to verse 24 for the sake of the body which is the church. Chapter 3 verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. You start noticing there is a pattern developing in Paul's writings when he's referring to the church. He will frequently call it the body of Christ. What's the means and the meaning of that usage? Well, I'd suggest, first of you all, you have to see the picture that Paul's going to use, and that is emphasizing that just like you and I have a physical body, the control center is our head. It's where our brains are located. And it is that which sends directions to the rest of the body. And that's the way that the Bible will speak of the church. Notice, for instance, with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 and verse 30. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Verse thirty. For we are members of his body, his flesh, and of his bones. Colossians 2, verse 19. Not holding fast to the head from whom the, all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. You see how he uses this figure, then anatomical picture of the body. You have a head and then you have all of the connections that are made, done in the body by the various tissues. And he says that's exactly the same way the church is. But Jesus is the head of it. But there is great emphasis upon viewing the church as a body to understand its unity, its cohesiveness, if you will. The fact that just like in my physical body, I have a head but the head gives direction for the hands, for the feet, for the mouth, for all the body. That's where the directions come from. And all of the body has to work together. What you cannot do with one hand, two hands many times can accomplish it. Notice with me, Ephesians five, or Ephesians two, verses fourteen through sixteen. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. What Paul is talking about is Jew and Gentile. The thing that separated the Jew and the Gentile was that Old Testament law, and he brought it to an end so you could have both Jews and Gentiles. It's not that there's a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's just one body. In fact, if you go to chapter 3, verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ in the gospel or through the gospel. And then very simply stated in chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all, going through verse 6 one body and it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor you're educated you're uneducated you're black or you're white there is still just one body there's just one church when you go to first corinthians chapter 12 and this is an extremely important passage paul was talking about spiritual gifts And about those people who would possess those spiritual gifts. And about how they viewed themselves. Some thought themselves more important. More valuable. I want you to notice the way Paul explains this. He puts it in both Jew and Gentile sense. And he also puts it in terms of how they function. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. He's saying we're using the body as a picture, but he says it's the same way in the church. For by one spirit were we all baptized into one body, where the Jews are Greeks, where the slaves are free, and have all been made to drink in one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it not therefore of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were the hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as it pleased. And if they all were one member, where would the body be? But indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I do not have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part that lacks it. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffers with it. And if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Do you see what his point is? He's saying you look at the spiritual body and we all have different functions. But we're not working against one another. We're working together. The emphasis upon the unity of the body of Christ. So many people... Have come away with this view that if someone else does something and they get honored for it, that somehow I must degrade them for that. That's not the case at all. When the Lord's church succeeds, we all succeed who are a part of that body. When the Lord's church suffers, we all suffer for that the second figure that he's going to use is that of a building. If you go with me now to chapter 2, let's look at verses 20 through 22. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now I want you to picture in your mind, it's as if God has somehow taken this foundation and Jesus is the cornerstone. He's that which everything is measured from. Everything is squared Or leveled from him. And he says, this is being built up a holy building. In fact, it's becoming a temple in which God's Spirit would dwell. There's so many other passages to which one could go, but let me refer you to some in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. Paul's going to use the same figure with the Corinthians. He says to them in verse 9, 11, and 16, and 17, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And then he follows through with that same theme from the book of Ephesians. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then you drop down to verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. There's so much in that, folks. Viewing God's church as a building, as a temple. Now, let me add to that, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8. through 8. Same thought. He says, coming to him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now here's the key phrase. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. We are living stones in the building of God. We're a part of it. Just like if you look around, there are concrete blocks. There's wood pillars. Every part of this building has some sort of function. And it's necessary. We need to realize that this is a place where God dwells. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, the Hebrew writer Makes a very important point. We often use it with regards to the creation of this world, but it actually refers to the church. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which will be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Do you see it? As, this is the Lord's house. That's the reason why it's called the church of Christ. It's his. It belongs to him. And if you are a living stone in that house, you're a part of it. And you have a function and you have a place. The church, as a temple, should reflect a place of worship. When we gather together here as, not just as a body, but as a building, a spiritual building, this is a place where we get together and we offer our worship, our devotion to God, just as much as they did in that temple of the Old Testament times. And just as a person would come to that temple and respect the sacredness of it, the specialness of it, the holiness of it, when we attend the services of the Lord's church, when we assemble together, we ought to respect the holiness, the sacredness of what we are doing here together today. Number three. Turn with me now to chapter 5, verses 25 through verse 33. Those eight verses have some great and powerful teaching within them. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. "...that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church." For we are members of his body, his flesh, and his bones. For this reason shall a man leave his father, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If you're thinking like a preacher... You're thinking, oh, there's a whole sermon right there. All the points and principles are found right in that passage. You can preach two different kinds of sermon. You can preach the husband and wife relationship, which is certainly revealed there. But more importantly, I want you to notice what he says in verse 32 that Brother Ferris read to us earlier. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The main thrust of this passage is not the husband and wife, but Christ and his church. And the church is the beautiful bride of Christ. This theme was borrowed from the Old Testament. I could take you through a number of Old Testament passages where God looks at Israel as his wife Let me just give you two passages which I think are proof enough. Jeremiah 3 verse 14. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. Just like a man and a woman are married, God said to Israel, I'm married to you. Isaiah 54 and verse 5, for your maker is your husband. That's the reason why in the book of Hosea as God takes the life of Hosea and parallels the adultery of Gomer, God looks at Israel and says, you've committed adultery as well. You've not been faithful to me. We come to the New Testament though and the church is the beautiful, no spot, no blemish, no wrinkle But let me take you to some passages which I think are just wonderful because they take this theme and they really expound upon it. You go to John chapter 3 and verse 29. John the Baptist is there and there are people who are questioning him. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. What are you doing then? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord. But John is now on the decrease and Jesus is on the increase. Doesn't that bother you, John? No, it doesn't bother me. Notice the way he reflects it. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly when he hears because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore the joy of mine is fulfilled. John is putting it like this. I'm just the best man. The wedding is about the groom and the bride. And I'm here just as the best man. And what I am thrilled at is when I hear the groom's voice because I know the wedding is about to take place. John was making it plain and clear. It's about Jesus and it's about His body. It's about His bride, the church. Revelation 21 and verse 9, John the apostle would again say, Come and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Paul would write, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. There's some meaning in this that we are the bride of Christ, that just like that bride on her wedding day wants everything to be perfect, she's wearing white for her purity, she wants her hair fixed perfectly. She wants everything to go off as it is supposed to be so that she can be the most beautiful bride her groom has ever seen. We as the Lord's church ought to live and conduct in ourselves in such a way that we please the Lord as the groom. You see, just like God's plan was and is referred to here in Ephesians 5. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Have you not read that He who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Never... Should God have to put away his bride, the church? In Romans 7, verses 1 through 4, he makes it clear. I don't have time to go into detail with regards to this, but he's talking about if a woman is joined to another man while her husband lives, she shall be called an adulteress you go out and you try to make another relationship with someone who is not your husband and you're joined to them, you're committing adultery. You leave the Lord and you somehow join yourself to the devil, then you're no longer the beautiful bride of Christ. You're stained. You're soiled. And he's talking about in verse 4 how that they have been made dead to the law through the body of Christ that they may be joined to another that is Christ to him who was raised from the dead that they might bear fruit unto God. The church should be pure, loyal, and obedient to the Lord as a husband. Number 4. If you'll go with me back to chapter 3. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 and then we'll look back to chapter 2 and verse 19. And the Lord is going to look, or excuse me, Paul here is going to picture the church as a brotherhood, or we might would say a family. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Notice, this is a family. And the family is named after the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people say, why do you call it the Church of Christ? It's His family. We wear His name. I know that's not popular in modern day society, but we're again still drifting along with very little guidance. We're Christians. Acts 11, and verse 26. Acts 26, and verse 28. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Verse 19 of chapter 2, Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're part of God's family now. Being a part of God's family means that you and I are brothers and sisters because we have one Father. You know, that's what makes you a brother or a sister is shared parentage. And God is our Father. Let me just give you some passages that really put icing on this cake, if you will. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood that means that I have got to love my family. I'm not talking about my physical family, my spiritual family. I've got to love this group of people here. And you know what? I like to spend time with people I love. We all do. And we ought to be a a family that loves to get together as often as possible And as a family, there are innumerable blessings. Let me just add to this, and then we'll try to draw this lesson to a close. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're of Christ, then you're of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's through faith by baptism that we're put into this family, this brotherhood. That's why we become sons. John 1 and verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You want to become a child of God this morning? Believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized for the remission of your sins. When you get to 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2, he says something that draws the importance of this out. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him even as He is." You see, being a child of God means that we get to go and spend eternity with our Father. And we don't always know what everything's going to hold for the future. But we know that when we see Jesus, we're going to be like Him. Changed from a physical state into a spiritual one. There to spend eternity with God forever. What a great privilege to be a member of the body of Christ. Christ. To be a member of his church. I cannot overemphasize this morning the greatness of being a Christian. All the spiritual blessings are found in him. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Your salvation depends upon being in Christ. You can be a part of that great group of saved people whom Paul refers to in the book of Ephesians as the saints. We're going to sing this song of encouragement. If you need to become a Christian or as a child of God to come back home, we want to urge you to do so as together we stand and sing.